Romans 1, 5 through 7, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray that God would bless and anoint his word this morning. Our holy, magnificent, infinite God, you are the greatest and to all glory and honor and exaltation go to you alone, Lord, for you are mighty to save, Lord. And we pray as I am a weak, fallible, sinful man, we all are, Lord, I pray that your words would pierce hearts this morning, that if somebody is here who does not trust and receive you as their only Lord and Savior by faith alone, that you'd work in their hearts by the grace of your Holy Spirit to transform their lives, to bring them from death to life, from grace to eternal life, Lord. What a beautiful thing that is. We pray that you'd work in people's hearts in only the way you can, Lord, to save, for you are glorious and mighty to save, and you are beautiful, Jesus. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict hearts to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, our only God and our Savior. It's in his precious name we ask all these things. Amen. So um, we saw last Sunday that gospel means good news. And gospel is a little bit more than good news. It's the best news ever. And the gospel message is that by only trusting in Jesus, we will get all of our sins, sins cleansed for, guilt and shame and debt, all completely wiped away, God forgiving us forever and ever. And the amazing thing about God's grace in the gospel is he does not just forgive you for those you know, 15, 20 sins that you're really aware of that you're committing, but for the millions of sins that you have committed that you're too proud or too blind to see. Every single one of those sins are washed away forever. And on top of that, I mean, that was already pretty you know, amazing news right there. On top of that, we are given his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone. And we are for, forever accepted by God. We are unconditionally loved by God in Christ. And so, you know, people hear this and they're like, oh, wait a minute, that sounds like way too good to be true. That's like the best news ever. There's, there's gotta be a catch here. There's, you know, our kind of our skeptical hearts begin to kind of settle in. They're like, we must do something other than just trust in Jesus. There must be something more I need to do to get God's love and acceptance. I, I must, I mean, we're talking about God here. And so people start getting very, very skeptical about this, quite frankly, just really amazing news. And we need to be reminded the Bible is clear that this is not just too good to be true. This is what the Bible teaches, this amazing good news that all of our sins are washed away. It says here in Romans 4, uh, five through eight, and to the one who does not work. So you're not working, you're not trying or achieving, but believes in him who declares righteous the ungodly or justifies the ungodly. So you're declared righteous when you're sinful and ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man of whom the Lord will not count 
his sins. So this, you look at this, it says here, the, the sins that you can't forget, the sins that you beat yourself up for, which we all do from time to time. We beat ourselves up with our, our past mistakes, the shame from our past. The sins you can't forget, God can't remember. They are cleansed by the work of Christ, by his blood and by, by his righteousness. And so the Bible goes on even further to really just rub in and soak in this amazing news uh, in Romans 8, 38 through 39. It says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, so nothing in the entire universe will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some people say, well, you know, maybe I can separate myself, but I hate to put it to you, you know, bring it to your attention, but you're actually a part of creation. You're a part of the universe. So nothing, even yourself, can separate you from the amazing love of God in Christ. So, you know, people are still skeptical. I understand, you know, like this news is so amazing, but people start thinking thoughts like, okay, if God's love for me is really this beautiful, unconditional, unlosable, like shield of righteousness that I can never get rid of, well, then that means that I have no reason to be good. I have no motivation to be holy or godly in my life. And um, in fact, if you really have God's unconditional love and mercy, and you can be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, well, then you know what? You know, you can just go down and do, go down and take a trip to, to Vegas and kind of do whatever you want, live as you please. You don't have to worry about anything because, hey, guess what? It's all forgiven. And that's how some people think, or they try to misunderstand this good news of the gospel. And, you know, I actually found this. Um, I never thought I'd be quoting a Onion article in a sermon, but here we are. Um, I actually found an uh, a, a Onion article of making a joke about unconditional love. Um, of all places, The Onion says this, and this is the, the it's not a real article. I want to be clear. Some people have, I've seen them on Facebook. They think that The Onion and The Babylon Bee are real news sites, and they'll post them on Twitter and Facebook. It's like, oh, man. No, it's a joke. These, this is for fun, right? And so um, this is a joke article titled, Area Child Disappointed to Learn Parents' Love is Unconditional. Irvine, California. Saying he doesn't even feel like trying anymore, eight-year-old Max Bledsoe expressing his strong disappointment Monday after learning that his parents' love is unconditional. I always thought they loved me because I'd actually earned it. But unfortunately, it turns out that their affection is apparently limitless, said a frustrated Bledsoe. Wondering aloud the point of doing so well in school, learning how to play the piano, and always going to bed before 9 p.m. if his parents were just going to keep on loving him no matter what he did anyways. Look at me. I just wasted the past three years of my life trying to win their approval by being a good kid, and for what? To get the love that was already coming to me anyways? So, you know, people struggle with this. Even the onion jokes about it, for crying out loud. So, but is it true? Just think about this. Is it true that if someone trusts in Christ and they have this unconditional love forever and ever, that they're going to be somehow no longer motivated to follow Jesus, no, no longer motivated to seek after righteousness and holiness? You know, after all, if it's already coming anyways, what good is it, as the onion jokes about? 
And what we're going to see this morning is, is something pretty amazing, is that actually when a person really truly comes to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their life just transforms and is totally changed. Um, you don't need to look any further than the Apostle Paul himself. You see, when Paul, Paul was a murderer, he murdered Christians. He persecuted Christians. Like, it doesn't get any worse than that, like being a murderer of Christians. And then when he sees Jesus on the road to Damascus, sees him in his resurrection body, and he knows he's saved by grace and faith alone, he doesn't go and, like, you know, go to a frat party afterwards. He doesn't, you know, go just, you know, casino, gamble away his mother's, like, retirement or something. He doesn't do any of those things. Rather, what he does is he gives his entire life to Jesus, he, he spreads the gospel through blood, sweat, and tears, and is actually, in, in the 60s, he was murdered for his faith, for standing firm about Jesus Christ and the gospel. He was murdered for his faith by Nero, the emperor. So, yeah, he didn't just go party it up after he was saved. There was a massive transformation, a massive transformation, and that's what God's love does for us. That's what his grace does for us. And we're going to see this in Romans 1, 5, going through the text verse by verse, verse 5, through whom we have received grace. The through whom in the previous verse we looked at last week is Jesus. So it's through Jesus we receive grace. And in Paul's case, apostleship, he received it through seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus and being called as an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So this is for the glory of God among the nations. That's why we preach the gospels, for God's glory, for God to be exalted. But when Paul says here the obedience of faith, he is not saying faith is the same thing as obedience or law-keeping. Here, like, you know, it's like people would say, like, faith is some sort of good work. It's some amazing work that earns God's favor. That's not what he's saying here. And you know, if you read throughout Paul's writings, he clearly distinguishes between faith and trusting and believing, receiving, and trying, working, and achieving. He distinguishes between law and gospel, faith and works, very clearly in his letters. Um, so the phrase, the obedience of faith in Greek, which Greek was the original language, Koine Greek, the Bible was written in, in Greek is a genitive of source, which means Paul is saying the obedience, the source, which comes from faith, the obedience which comes from faith, or as some translators put it, the obedience which springs from faith. So it's a source. And this is how I and most Greek scholars translate this phrase here in the book of Romans. So according to Paul here, if you receive the gospel by trusting in Jesus, then your life's going to be changed. And Paul goes on in the next two verses to stress the amazing grace and peace we have in God and Christ. Romans 1, 6 through 7, including you who are to belong to Jesus Christ, we belong to Jesus. That's our purpose in life. We, we belong to him. Everything we do is his, ultimately. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints... Now, saints here, people usually think of a saint as, or a saint as a really holy person. Like you might think of like Saint Anselm, or you guys don't know Saint Anselm. Let's just forget it. But you know, someone he would think is like you know, uh, I'm running a blank on who a prominent saint is. So you know what I mean, though. People, what's that? I know it's my middle name, and I'm Irish, and I don't even realize. You know, Saint Patrick. I can't believe this. So yeah, like like people think, oh, a really holy person. 
like Saint Patrick, you know, that like that, you gotta be really godly to be a saint. But what Paul does here is he calls all Christian saints by faith in Christ. So all Christians are worthy in Christ by the righteousness of Christ and all Christians. If you believe in Jesus this morning, you're a saint just like Saint Patrick. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so one of the things if you've read through Paul's letter, your letters, you're gonna know every single letter. He's like, he's, he's, uh, people make jokes about how every communion or baptism, I say this, it's like similar things. Paul's robotic like I am. He says grace and peace at the beginning of every letter. So I've got a justification for being kind of robotic, okay? Um, every time you read one of his letters, it's grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. There's never a letter where he doesn't do that. And so this is his standardized reading that he has at the beginning of every single letter he has. Um, and what's more interesting is that uh, the Greek word for grace is charis. And this Greek word is used in Paul's writings a hundred times. I know because I counted. <laughs> um, and let me tell you from somebody who studies uh, the Greek New Testament that that is a lot of times to use a word in, in, in Paul's writings. That is like, a, I mean, there are very few words that Paul uses more than grace. Grace is something he just pounds over and over and over again. And that's because, as I said earlier, it was a grace of God that changed his life. So no wonder he's gonna pound it over and over again. And so the basic meaning in Greek for, the, for charis is unmerited favor, unmerited favor. And in fact, scholars have taken that one step further because when you read Romans, it says, you know, like the church later, sinners, we're all sinners, right? We're all, we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And so scholars have said, okay, it's not unmerited favor, but it's demerited favor, which means that you deserve punishment, but instead of receiving punishment, you get good news, you get grace, you get unconditional love and mercy. And so that's how scholars have understood it. And Paul makes very clear in his writings that grace by definition is something you cannot earn. Grace by definition is something you can't earn, something you can't strive for. The idea of working to get worthy for God is the total opposite idea of the Greek word charis and grace. And this is how Paul defines grace in one way in Romans 11, five through six, you wanna look at this. Really, uh, I think, helpful definition to get our minds around the, the meaning of grace, which is a center of the Christian life. Uh, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. If it were on the basis of works, look what he says. Otherwise, grace would be no longer grace. So Paul says the very definition of grace is incompatible with someone trying to be worthy or having works to get to God. Now, this is interesting because Paul has just said a few verses earlier. We just read it that obedience automatically comes from faith and we, we're, have, we're to have works of obedience in our lives. So people have had trouble reconciling these two statements. Like what is the relationship between faith on one hand and works on the other? And how can a person have good works in his life and yet be saved by the grace of God? And the quick way to reconcile this is just to say that we are saved by grace and faith alone. But as Paul has indicated, good works will necessarily 
follow if we live on. And this is why Paul has said in verse five, obedience comes from faith. And this has been the view of, of Christ, Christians as early back as the first and second century all throughout the history of the church. Martin Luther put it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in a similar way, faith without works is not faith at all, but simply a lack of obedience to God. In other words, works don't make you saved. They're evidences of you already being saved. Now, because people, I have, I've, I've had this situation when I'm explaining the biblical view, people still misunderstand me. So wait, you're saying that you're saved by uh, faith plus works equals salvation? You know, that's, if I get a diagram up there, I think I guys gave you guys a diagram. Yeah, I mean, people think, okay, so you're saying faith plus works equals salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, but rather, it is faith alone that gets you saved and good works accompany your salvation. So the bottom one, which is faith equals salvation plus works. That's what that means. So good works do not make you saved. They are a sign that you are saved. This is not some sort of artificial thing that we've had to make up for the Bible, but no, this is something in common experience, right? Um, a sign that there is a fire is what? It's a sign that there's a fire when there's smoke. There's fire. People say that, right? The smoke doesn't make the fire. Some guy, you know, with the matches made the fire, right? But you see, when the fire happens, the smoke automatically issues from it. And, um, oh, I probably shouldn't have put this in here, but you know, we're all, everybody's talking about viruses nowadays <laughs> with everything going on. But a symptom of viruses is that you may have a runny nose, but the runny nose doesn't make you sick. It's a result of already having the virus and being sick. The difference. And um, one of my personal favorites, because I am a big fan of eating in general, um, not always healthy food. Sometimes I'll starve myself in the morning and my stomach starts grumbling because I haven't eaten all morning. Um, then I'll eat junk food in the afternoon, as some of the youth in college can personally attest to. So, um, but a, a sign that I am hungry is my stomach grumbling. That doesn't make me hungry. That's a sign that I am hungry. And the same is true of grace. The reason the basis for you receiving the grace of God has nothing to do with good works. I want to repeat that. The basis, the foundation of you receiving grace has nothing to do with what you did. It's nothing to do with your good works. Otherwise, Paul said grace would no longer be grace. But when you receive grace, you already have it. Good works result automatically. And the Bible just teaches this directly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Couldn't be any clearer than that. It is a gift of God. Not a paycheck, it's a gift. You work for a paycheck, you received a gift. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Like he says it like three times right there, right? It's very clear. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul's got no problem with good works. You can look at it right here. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So while grace is not based on obedience, it results in obedience. Now, uh, some people will say, well, for me to show that I have God's grace, I, I gotta work really hard then. I gotta really prove myself that I have God's grace and I'm just, I'm gonna be perfect. I'm never gonna sin. I'm, I'm gonna be the greatest person ever because I wanna show that I really have God's grace. So I gotta work hard and make sure I get myself to a level of kind of sinless perfectionism. Yeah, good luck. Um, 
The Bible teaches, though, that we will always struggle with sin in this life. Always. That'll never come to an end. You'll never reach a point where you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, you know, people and God love you perfectly. That's never going to happen. It's just never going to happen. And uh, the Bible teaches, if you say that you get to a level where you've arrived and you think that you're perfect in this life, if you say that in this life, then in fact, you're not a Christian, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. You're like, geez, that's pretty harsh, Nate. That's a little heavy-handed there. It'd be a little nicer. Well, the problem is, that's what the Bible says. Um, in 1 John 1, 8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So in Greek here, in the, you can see it in English too, in the present tense in Greek, it's saying presently. If you say presently, that you have no sin in your life. You are a liar and the truth is not in you. So we are always going to be sinners. We're always going to be needing grace. We're always going to be needing the mercy and love of God. As Brenny Manning has said, and this is really rings true, God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. Isn't that the truth? So Christians, we never live perfectly, but we do live differently. And the difference is instead of practicing sinning daily and and just giving into sin, we daily instead fight sin. We don't give into sin. We repent of sins daily. But back to the original question that I kind of started off at the intro here, why would someone want to follow Christ if Christ already loves them unconditionally? And the main answer to that is that we do good things out of gratitude and thankfulness to what Jesus has already completely accomplished for us, what he's already done for us. So, and this is intuitive. I think we know this on some level. Most of you, I mean, I hope most of you that, you know, I'm sure most of you have a very decent character. How about that? All of you have a great character. I'll just give you carte blanche acceptance there, like Grace. Um, You know, anybody who's decent, if you receive a gift from a friend of a billion dollars, one billion dollars, all right? And three weeks later, they're like, hey, you know, I'm having a little trouble with my kids. And you come and watch them. You're not gonna be like, no, forget you, man. You're on your own. You gotta watch your kids. You know, they gave you a billion dollars. You're gonna watch your kids because you're so thankful that they gave you a billion dollars. So you're not gonna be like some ungrateful person because you've received the greatest, well, not the greatest, eternal life's the greatest gift. A really good, a really good gift, okay? And Jesus it has given us the greatest gift. He's given us eternal life by an infinite sacrifice, taking the punishment for our sins on the cross. And so, yeah, we're really thankful for that. That's changed our lives. And so we focus on Jesus and what he has done. It brings gratefulness to our heart, joy to our heart. We wanna be like Jesus. I like the way one pastor put it. The focus of the Christian faith is not on our immorality. It's on Jesus who died for our immorality. And if we focus on what Jesus and what he has done for us, that brings transformation through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's grace that transforms people, not a rule book. And this is why every person, you know this intuitively, every person, when you see a wet paint sign on a wall, it would be theater if we had one here at the church, you would never think about touching that wall unless that sign were there, ever. You wouldn't. Because, you know, you would never walk in a room and say, I'm going to go touch some walls. But you see that wet paint sign, you're like, I'm going to touch it. Because the rules don't change us. 
it makes us bad, you know? Um, we need grace. And this is how Paul puts this transformation that occurs when we receive grace. He says, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So there's thanksgiving that people have when they receive grace. So the fact that all your, your debt is wiped away and cleansed and that you are forever loved by God, it is that truth that changes lives. And um, if people know the real you, if they really knew who you were in the inside, your bad thoughts, the dumb things you think, the weird things you think, the secrets that you've even buried from yourself, people wouldn't wanna be around you. But you know what's amazing about God is he does. He knows you better than you know yourself. He stays with you and loves you and never stops loving you. And it is that truth that we are known by God and yet he still loves us. He knows us better than anybody else and yet he loves us more than anybody else. It is that truth that makes us wanna radically give our lives to serving God and loving him. Let me ask you this question. What will cause a son to love their father more? What kind of fathers? Two different fathers of me presenting here. A father that does this. Okay, in order for me to love you, you gotta get straight A, son, and you gotta make varsity football. You gotta be the best on the team. And then you, I will finally love you. Will a son love a father like that? No. What about the father who says, okay, son, you got drunk, flunked out of high school, and you're terrible at sports. I love you anyways. That father is gonna have the love of his son forever, that unconditional love. And that, that son in time will change and wanna be like that father. Son's not gonna be, one, not gonna be wanting to be like the father who offers this conditional strings attached kind of love. And so when we see this infinite sacrifice that Jesus made for us, this unconditional love and grace that never ends, from Jesus, that makes us wanna be more like Jesus. It makes us love sin less and love Jesus more. I love how one author put it. Legalism says God will love us if we change. The gospel said God will change us because he loves us. And so it is this radical, never-ending love that changes more than anything. And one of my favorite examples of radical grace in the Bible is the thief on the cross. This is a a beautiful story because, you know, and most people don't realize this. I mean, but if you read Matthew's account and you read Luke's account parallel, what you're going to notice is that both robbers and thieves were mocking Jesus and then there's a change that occurs. Most people just see the, the thief on the cross or pen and whatever it is. But no, he is actually joining in the mockery right before he comes to Christ. This is incredible. Look at Matthew 27, 38 through 44. Then two robbers, not one, Two, two were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in the three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God and the robbers, not robber, robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, reviled him in the same way. And some point later, Luke records this. Um, we don't know the exact point, but some point later on that cross, 
one of those criminals that were reviling him, the thief. One continues to mock and the other rebukes him finally and says, stop it, you know, and he makes a transformation through the Holy Spirit and he repents. Look at Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. But the other rebuked saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So he's changing his mind here. He's changing his course. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. We're not good people. We're bad people. We're getting what we deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus, in response, truly I say to you today, not 2,000 years later, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says that very day, that very precise day, clearly, you're gonna be in heaven with me. And the, the Jewish understanding of the Greek word for paradise here is the greatest glories of heaven you could ever receive in the presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ. This guy was not baptized, right? He was on the cross, hanging, dying. He died on the cross. This guy, this guy, his entire life, I mean, he was a thief, he was a robber and a thug, and he deserved what he was getting, dying on that cross. And yet he turns to Jesus, and Jesus completely saves him. Today you will be with me in paradise, I mean, this is proof positive that getting into heaven is not based on your worthiness, your righteousness, but Jesus' Jesus's worthiness and righteousness for you. His obedience, not yours. Just amazing the mercy that Jesus has here and the, the transformation it brings. Now, I mean, the thief died right there, right? So we don't get to see like the rest of his life if he were to continue on what, it, what his life would be like. But if his life were to continue, he would produce good works. But those good works have nothing, zero, zilch, nothing to do with him being saved because he died before he could do anything great. He lived a life of, of refuse, of sin, and then he comes to Jesus and he is saved by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And this truth transforms us. Grace transforms us. We are more like Jesus focusing on what he has done for us, completely saving us and bringing this lasting transformation, knowing that every debt we've ever committed, every shameful thing, every evil thing you've ever done and that you will do. You're gonna do evil things even after today and the next day and the next day. All of those sins are not counted to you. They were counted to Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when he screamed out, from a bloody cross, it is finished. And that's what grace does. It brings transformations. One of my favorite examples of this, this truth um, um, that's in the Bible uh, comes from the movie, movie Les Miserables. I've watched different versions of it. Um, uh, uh, um, and my favorite one is the Liam Neeson one. I just watched it last night. Again, it's so good. But um, it's a story about a guy and this guy breaks the law by stealing uh, bread and... Uh, his whole life, I mean, he's spent being punished for this in um, like a terrible prison. And he's lifting rocks. It's just, a, I mean, huge stones, not rocks. Rocks are not heavy. It's a stone, okay? He's lifting stones and um, the prison guards and everything, Javert, 
um, this, this general guy, he, he is just crushing him with the, the law and, and pounding on him as he's lifting these stones. And he's finally let off on parole, right? And he is just a bad guy. The law has done its work and he is a terrible, awful human being. He's sleeping on the streets. He's uh, angry, resentful. Um, and uh, finally, I mean, a lady comes up. She says, why are you sleeping here? He's like, no one's gonna take me in. He's just an angry guy. And she's like, why don't you knock on that door? And it's a door of a priest. And a priest takes him in and feeds him and gives him a nice bed to sleep in. Even though the entire time, Liam Neeson's character, um, Jean Valjean, I'm so bad at pronouncing French. It's a joke. I don't know French. I know Greek. Um, even though I watched it like last night, I still cannot pronounce French words to save my life. Um, but anyways, this Jean Valjean guy, he's just this, this protagonist, Liam Neeson's character, he's just nasty to this priest. I mean, he's like, you know, threatening to kill him while he's like eating soup um, and everything, making rude comments, the priest. But at some point in, during the dinner where, he's, where this priest has been so kind to offer him food and bed, at some point, he kind of, I think he has, feels kind of bad for his behavior. And then he promises the priest that in the morning, he will be a new man. Well, he doesn't actually keep on that promise. Jean Valjean, uh, the first thing he does in the morning is he gets up and proceeds to steal the priest's silverware. He's like taking it and the, the priest catches him, right? You know, it's like, it's like five or six in the morning on the, on the movie. The priest catches him stealing the silverware. And so he hides in the shadows and, and uh, beats the priest to where the point where the priest is knocked unconscious. So much for uh, you know, love and grace there. You're like, wow, this is, how is this proving your point? Well, just keep on listening, okay? So, yeah, I know, it just seems to be proving the opposite right now. Um, so as the movie progresses then, the guards catch him. They actually find this guy and um, they bring him back to the priest. And instead of the priest throwing him under the bus uh, and saying, oh yeah, that guy stole my silverware. He says, I'm gonna quote from the movie, he says, yes, of course I gave him the silverware since he was claiming that, oh, no, I didn't steal it. The priest gave it to me. The guards are like, yeah, sure, you stole the silverware. But the priest says, yes, of course I gave him the silverware. And he goes on to say, but why didn't you take the candlesticks? So he's saying, you know, you stole the silverware. Take the candlesticks. And so the guards are like convinced that this is actually, you know, he's giving him this stuff. That was very foolish. They're worth 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? So he's not going to be punished and sent back to prison. He is giving him these things as a gift, even though he knocked him out and assassinated him. I mean, he just brutally hit him in the, in the middle of, or the early morning. And um, the priest then says this to Valjean. He says, and don't forget, don't ever forget. You promised to become a new man. And Jean Valjean says, why are you doing this? Like, it's like crazy grace. You've, someone let you in their house and you steal their stuff and you knock them out? Why are you doing this? It's so shocking. That's how grace is. We're like, what, what how, I don't deserve this. Why am I getting this? The priest says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer belonging to evil with the silver. I bought your soul, the silver. I've ransomed you from fear, and hatred, and now I give you back to God. Now, after this priest gave this guy the candlesticks and got him Scott off for attacking him, do you think in the story 
that Jean Valjean uh, lived a life of immorality and debauchery and hating people. Look at the story. It's an amazing story just to watch it or read it. He spends his entire life serving and caring for others. His whole life is spent helping prostitutes and the fatherless. He's spent his whole life doing this, not living wickedness. And that's what grace does for us. It transforms us. It changes us from the inside out. Now, this is not just from a movie. This is, as I said earlier, this is what happened to Paul. This crazy grace being forgiven for murder. Multiple times murdering Christians, he was forgiven for that. And his life changed and he spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's what grace does. And if you'd like that grace this morning, I ask you to trust in Jesus Christ by faith alone. And that will utterly and completely change and transform your life. The question you have to ask yourself is, will you make that first step in receiving a gift? That's all it is, is receiving a gift. You don't earn a gift. You don't strive for a gift. You trust, rest, and receive. And if you want help receiving the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, just talk to me or Johnny or anybody else on stage this morning and we'll, we'll pray with you and we'll help you do that. Let's pray.